Um, all right. Um, so what I wanted to do today was to talk about um, a group of people that are, um, you know, perfectly uh, normal living kidney donors, or at least for the most part, they're perfectly normal um, and they need to be perfectly normal for them to be able to um, donate a kidney. Um, with the advent of genetic testing, not only direct to consumer, but also widely available to clinicians, um, a lot of uh, um, ostensibly normal people can get genetic testing done. And that is also true for living kidney donors. And sometimes um, that can present with information that is difficult to interpret and difficult to, um, to often you know, uh, navigate a path forward. So this talk is really just about my own viewpoint on how we should be using genetic testing in this particular area of uh, medicine. I don't have any disclosures. I will be discussing kidney seek. It's just one of the many genetic tools available to make a genetic diagnosis. And I may discuss the off-label use of drugs or procedures. And as usual, this is a fairly um, uh, interactive talk, so feel free to stop and interrupt. I may not always see what's in the chat box, um, but uh, feel free to, to speak up in case I haven't seen it. So my objectives are uh, to, to, for you to appreciate that genetic causes of end-stage kidney disease are under-recognized, that family history and ancestry increase risk of ESRD in living donors, understand what the options are today to make a genetic diagnosis. And hopefully at the end of this, you'll learn that um, the more we test, the more we'll find. Um, so unbiased testing of multiple renal disease genes or even doing exome sequencing or genome sequencing increases the sensitivity of, of um, finding variants that uh, might be significant but reduces the specificity. Uh, and um, generally, we are very careful about testing asymptomatic people for um, future genetic disease. And I'll briefly cover the role of genetic counselors and geneticists in evaluation of genetic disease. And then, and this is really the purpose of the talk to hopefully for you to recognize that um, testing living kidney donors for genetic disease, if done responsibly, can inform risk of future ESRD and improve decision-making for both the physician and the kidney donor. So um, a case history, so this is an 18-year-old female of European ancestry with ITP who donates a kidney to her sister with HUS in 2001. So that's 20, over 20 years ago. The donor develops proteinuria um, 10 years later uh, during her pregnancy, presumably labeled as preeclampsia, delivers a healthy boy. A month after delivery, she presents with anemia, low platelets, creatinine of five. She's got microangiopathic hemolysis and she needs to start acute dialysis and she doesn't recover. So it becomes chronic dialysis for ESRD. She comes to see us and it turns out that she's got a uh, null variant in complement factor H. And so she's got atypical HUS secondary to complement factor H. Recall that back in 2001, we didn't really know about the existence of atypical HUS. Uh, and we certainly didn't know the genetic basis for um, any of the complement mediated atypical HUSs. So she gets a living unrelated kidney transplant here. Uh, eight years ago now, she's doing just fine. Um, parenthetically, her sister lost that second kidney within three years and uh, remains um, uh, untransplanted uh, with a very high PRA. And the loss of that donated kidney was presumably also from atypical HUS. And you could argue that this particular individual, whether she had one kidney or two kidneys, would have had the same fate. Nevertheless, if you knew that she was going to get a genetic kidney disease, we wouldn't have taken out her kidney because not every atypical HUS presents catastrophically with irreversible severe renal failure. Some present with a more, more modest decline in kidney function, perhaps with more profound purpura or something else that brings them to light. 
So we all make diagnoses because we needed to recognize the problem, to prognosticate, to manage. And we do it by looking for disease patterns and assembling diagnostic tests. And in kidney disease, and this is primarily for the fellows, um, we recognize at least um, five different forms of kidney disease, which allows us to narrow the differential diagnosis because all of these, except the last one, will cause a reduction in GFR. Um, some of these will cause proteinuria, some of these will cause hematuria, but by, by looking to, for these phenotypic patterns of disease, you can narrow the differential diagnosis. So cystic diseases, ADPKD is the classic example. Renal development de defects are listed there. The glomerular diseases you're all familiar with. What I've done there is list three different genetic forms of glomerular disease, but we're all familiar with the autoimmune forms and so on. Tubular interstitial disease, again, I've given you a genetic disease example, presenting with bland urine, minimal proteinuria, and the disorders of tubular transport um, generally does not affect kidney function, but sometimes can. Barters, when it causes nephrocalcinosis, can cause a decline in kidney function. And I've listed two, a distal convoluted tubule disorder and a proximal tubular disorder. And again, in nephrology, just like any other system, we do history, physical, we look for function of the particular organ, we do imaging. Sometimes we do a kidney biopsy and sometimes we do a genetic test. And you can make a genetic diagnosis without a genetic test. So this is urinalysis to diagnose cystinuria. This is a renal biopsy to diagnose Fabry disease. And what you're seeing are uh, uh, porocytes and vascular and glomerular endothelial cells filled with um, uh, lysosomal inclusions. Uh, polycystic disease can be diagnosed on an ultrasound or an MRI. So that's a very large um, Kidney is so big that you can you can't even see the liver or the spleen. That's the diaphragm, and those are the that's the lung. That's the stomach pushed up up there. Um, but sometimes you have to do genetic testing, and a condition like Gordon's, there's no way to make a diagnosis except by genetic testing. So there is a place for it, uh, but it's usually to to confirm disease, not to look for it in someone who's completely asymptomatic. Um, and a genetic disease, however you make it, is a, is a diagnosis, regardless of how you make it. Um, sometimes it's the only way to do things. Um, um, for transplant purposes, it can determine what the optimal um, management should be. Um, complement factor H and complement factor I have a high rate of recurrence, as you saw in that case. Uh, genetic forms of FSGS have low rates of recurrence, except uh, those that are, um, as we heard last week, we heard about minimal change, but I think the story for FSGS that's autoimmune is the same. Uh, primary hyperoxaluria requires more than a kidney transplant alone. And when it comes to living donors, again, the focus of today's talk, um, our goal really is to consider genetic disease in living donor candidates who are biologically related to typically the waitlisted candidate who has a kidney disease. And so the responsibility of the transplant center is to do their best to determine whether that transplant candidate's disease is genetic. And if so, whether that related living donor who is still asymptomatic uh, is really pre-symptomatic, that is predicted to get disease, but sometime in the future. Um, and what's important to note is that you really need to start with the transplant candidate, not with the unaffected living donor, uh, because uh, um, screening of asymptomatic individuals will only uncover variants whose significance you typically will not know. So yeah, these are usually done for first degree relatives of patients with CKD or ESRD, not for second or third degree, with the exception of X-linked recessive disorders where you might have uh, a niece donating to her maternal uncle who has X-linked alports, and it's possible that her mother uh, doesn't have meaningful disease and none of her siblings do. So that's not a first degree relative, but that's an exception uh, typically for X-linked recessive diseases. There are some challenges with genetic testing, uh, determining what you really need to do. We need to know what test to order. And for that, you'll need to figure out what phenotype a person has. And they don't always 
conform to a specific phenotype, then you have to figure out what tests you order uh, and the expense and interpretation. Interpretation is really very important when it comes to asymptomatic um, um, people testing. And what you'd want to know if you were going to be testing asymptomatic people is what the relevance of what you find is to disease. And there's clearly um, risks of testing, and this is um, some of the information that is covered by a genetic counselor before testing is done. And when it comes to testing living donors um, without regard to their affected family member, is you can overdiagnose and falsely give the living donor a diagnosis they don't have. You can provide false reassurance because you've now tested for a disease that is unknown in the waitlist candidate. And so um, you could be giving false reassurance if you haven't used the right test to exclude disease. Uh, hence the need for genetic counseling. Some of this I've covered before, but what you need to know is that um, the haploid human genome is 3 billion base pairs. So we have 6 billion bases. Each of us carries about three and a half million single nucleotide variants. That is one base that is different from the uh, reference human sequence, but in 3.6 million places. That's a lot of differences that, that exist. Um, we also have an additional 350,000 small insertions or deletions. Several of those are in the coding sequence, and most genetic variants that cause disease are in the coding sequence. So you can see there's potential for a lot of disease if you don't know how to analyze the variants you find. And importantly, there's at least three loss of function variants uh, in known disease-causing genes and another 20 that's predicted to be deleterious. They're not you know, true loss of function, but depending on where the missense variant is, they're predicted to be deleterious. So many of us are walking around um, with deleterious genetic variants in our system, but may not necessarily be manifesting disease. Does that mean we're all going to get those diseases? No, because we don't quite know what affects penetrance of a disease. And that's, again, brings us back to the problem of testing unaffected people. So if we have 4 million base pair differences, that still makes us 99.94% identical because the denominator is 6 billion, uh, which is three log orders uh, greater. Um, this is just to show you what Sanger sequencing would look like. You have a single peak at every position if you're homozygous, wild type, or reference sequence. Um, if you're heterozygous, you'll have two peaks at a position. And if you're homozygous for the variant as in a recessive disease, you now, instead of getting the tall black peak of a G, you get a tall single peak red for a uh, T. Um, all right, so then um, we can have large insertion uh, um, deletions. So all that I've told you before are either single nucleotide variants or small insertion deletions. You can have very large insertions and deletions which can be a cause of disease. So gene duplication is probably how we've evolved providing genetic diversity, but gene duplications also mean errors during uh, replication, uh, during cell division. And some genes are right next to each other and the names indicate the fact that they're right next to each other because um, they're related to each other. But not every gene that has consecutive genes that have consecutive numbering are, are right next to each other. So PKD1 and PKD2 are on different chromosomes and were simply named what they are because of uh, their relationship to the disease, not in relationship to um, their genetic proximity. And in fact, PKD1 is adjacent to another monogenic disease, tuberous sclerosis, its second gene, TSE2. And when you have genes that are right next to each other that are similar, you can have replication errors that cause very large deletions, deleting sometimes more than one gene, sometimes several genes altogether. And when you get PKD1 and TAC2 mutated together, you get a mixture of polycystic disease and tuberous sclerosis. So we also carry large deletions. Many of them uh, may, may cause no recognizable phenotype, but some do, like HNF1 beta, which in 50% of cases is come, comes from a copy number variant. Um, and 
this is a disease with um, limited penetrance. It's a disease that arises de novo 50% of the time, so there will be no family history. And uh, it doesn't uh, get picked up by the usual testing sequence. Um, Moni, I'll get to your question uh, um, at the end. Uh, um, since uh, you since you brought up that uh, uh, that question on the case of the sister, so um, for picking up large deletion, sometimes you need additional testing and not just the standard genetic testing sequence. So you have to also be familiar with what the limitations of the genetic testing that you order are, not only in terms of what genes are on the panel, but whether the panel is capable of identifying large copy number variants. All right, um, um, so when a genetic test is performed, there are so many variants that are identified that those have to be interpreted. And it's essential before the clinician gets the report. And how does that happen? Well, there's a very complex um, process that uh, occurs in the background where you know, every single base is compared against the reference genome. And then there's some um, prediction tools that determine whether these variants are likely to be deleterious or benign. And then through a complex process, um, you arrive at um, what may be uh, um, uh, likely to cause disease, likely to be benign and everything in between. And we use evidence codes. The lab uses evidence codes and several rules to come up with coding for every one of these variants that is not discarded by the by the computer algorithm. And the goal is to reach one of five different conclusions for each of the variants that is filtered in after this um, type of uh, computer analysis. And the goal is to get to uh, variants that are either benign, likely benign, uncertain significance, likely pathogenic or pathogenic. And all that the lab can do is use the laboratory information to give you a conclusion. Something that is a VUS doesn't necessarily mean it is not the cause of disease. Um, something that is uh, pathogenic may not actually be the cause of the disease in your particular case. So you could have someone with uh, deafness, thin basement membranes, FSGS, but you might find a pathogenic PKD1 variant, and then you have to figure out what the meaning of that is. So the laboratory gives you guidance, and then the clinician has to put that in context. So you need disease-specific knowledge to properly interpret ACMG rules. Sometimes you have to do additional testing. The clinician will have to do this to try and upgrade or downgrade a variant so that you can more accurately prognosticate and counsel the affected individual. So options for us are um, you can do focused genetic testing. And generally, if you're not um, uh, comfortable with genetic testing, it's always better to do focused testing so that if you're suspecting Fabry disease in an individual, just test for that single gene or cystinosis, just test for a single gene. So you don't come up with noise in other genes that are not of relevance. But some diseases don't have a single gene cause. PKD is multiple genes, kidney stones are multiple genes. So you may need to do a more broad, but still narrow panel-based testing. And then if you don't have a differential diagnosis or the differential diagnosis is way too broad and you're gonna be testing hundreds of genes anyway, you could then do a comprehensive gene panel or exome or genome sequencing. And again, when we're talking about testing here in the context of today's talk, we're talking about testing the affected individual. So you don't test the, the sister, asymptomatic sister of someone with polycystic disease with a polycystic kidney disease panel. You would test the affected individual to find the genetic basis of disease in that affected individual and then return to the donor. Um, so what are the um, advantages of exome sequencing? Well, it turns out it's completely unbiased, right? You're testing every um, uh, protein coding region. And it turns out that in an unbiased sample of older ESRD patients, um, you can find genetic disease in uh, nearly 10% of uh, patients. So these are not patients enriched for kidney disease. This is a um, ESRD cohort over the age of 50 that were recruited for a cholesterol lowering trial. 
Um, and the more uncertain the disease is in the clinician's mind, the higher the likelihood of a diagnostic yield. Clearly, when you're diabetic, low likelihood of uh, genetic disease or hypertensive, much lower likelihood. Um, so that's uh, the purpose of this is to just remind you that in an unselected cohort of people with ESRD in your dialysis unit, the positivity rate is probably about 10%, and it's not all polycystic disease. In fact, it's probably less than a third that's polycystic disease. In this particular cohort, a third was polycystic, a third was Alport, and a third were a mixture of um, 60 plus monogenic diseases. The advantage is it's an unbiased integration of the entire exome. You can limit the bioinformatic analysis to a single gene, to a few genes, or to a subset of genes. So you can limit um, the, uh, um, the variance of uncertain significance you would find. Um, and if the cohort that is being tested is enriched for genetic disease, so you've specifically ask for this because you're suspecting genetic disease, get a positive diagnosis about 20 to 25% of the time. And with an exome, you can identify new genes that cause disease because it's unbiased. Uh, I don't see anything else in the chat. So um, the, the, the um, risks of doing this is that you will get a lot of variants now because you're testing the entire exome. Most testing companies don't include a nephrologist or a clinical geneticist who's comfortable with the clinical phenotypes of uh, organ systems. It's not optimized usually for ADPKD, the duplicated region, not usually optimized for CNVs. Um, by looking everywhere, you might find the actionable variants. Actionable variants are those that need to be communicated to the rest, to the individual, like a pathogenic variant in BRCA1 or in the Lynch syndrome or in uh, Dennis Trash syndrome, which can cause Wilms tumors. Um, and then there is one unusual disease called uh, MUC1 mediated autosomal dominant tubular interstitial kidney disease that can't be identified by today's technique of next generation sequencing. And then you can use broad-based panels. This is our um, uh, recent data on 400 patients sample sent from around the country. And it's obviously enriched for kidney disease and you can have a solve rate of as high as 40% in a cohort when you're really selecting people out. Clinicians are selecting people out for genetic testing. Um, and uh, this particular panel is um, optimized for ADPKD. It's optimized for discovery of CNV. Uh, we're only doing a renal subset, so you limit the number of incidental findings. And uh, But the problem with doing a targeted gene panel like this is every time a new gene is discovered, you have to um, add it to the panel, and that's not a trivial matter. Uh, none of these, except for genome sequencing, is designed to identify intronic or regulatory variants. And this test also cannot uh, um, reliably identify um, uh, the duplication in uh, MUC1. So why is this all relevant for living kidney donors? Well, it turns out that if you're related to someone with kidney disease, typically the waitlisted candidate, you have an increased risk of end-stage kidney disease yourself. So this is follow-up data on living donors over a 25-year period. So this is post-donation. So they start out um, with normal kidney function, otherwise they wouldn't have been allowed to donate. They don't have diabetes, they don't have hypertension, they're typically young people. And you can see if you're not related to your recipient, your risk of kidney disease is down here. It separates only after about 15 years. While if you're related, then your risk is higher um, and uh, it's about twofold increased risk. The spread here is very wide the number of donors that um, are at this uh, end are very limited. So I would sort of take this difference here to be more meaningful. And it's about 1.7 fold when you take all comers. And the problem is that 40% of living donors today, that's about 4,000 of the 10,000 living donors that, uh, that donate in the US alone annually are related to their recipients, siblings, children, or parents. And um, the degree of relationship matters. So if you're an identical twin, you have a nearly 20-fold increased risk. Um, it doesn't mean that 
identical twin donors shouldn't donate. It just means that they need to be counseled that they have an extraordinarily high risk. And the younger they are, the more the risk, only because their residual uh, lifetime is so much greater. And the median age of ESRD in the population at large is uh, between 50 and 60. So someone who's normal at 20 is no prediction for what their future might look like. So if you were suspecting genetic disease um, and you have a living kidney donor who's biologically related, you'd want to start by phenotyping the recipient candidate who may come to you to the transplant center without a phenotype. They come to you with a with ESRD, uh, no cause known or unknown or labeled as diabetes, but um, you don't really know um, what's been done for them because they're usually coming from elsewhere. Um, we may have to trace their ultrasound or their CT or see if they've had renal biopsy done or genetic testing done, and often it isn't. So you're going to have to guess um, after ESRD what the cause of kidney disease is. Hopefully you can establish a diagnosis or a differential diagnosis. Then you would test the affected individual, but only if they're presenting with a living-related kidney donor or if you believe that diagnosis in the transplant candidate will have a bearing on their own post-transplant management. So you suspect atypical HUS or you suspect primary hyperoxaluria. There you're doing it for the transplant candidate, not for the living donor. Um, and again, this is a reminder that to make a diagnosis in a pre-symptomatic living donor, you don't need to do genetic testing to make a genetic diagnosis. Ultrasound has significant predictive value in a first-degree relative of someone known to have ADPKD, but it's not perfect. Uh, if you're less than 30 years old, the negative predictive value um, is only 90%. If you're less than 40 years old, the net, net negative predictive value is a little shy of 100%. So if you wanted to be certain, you should do genetic testing in the affected individual and then test the donor to know for sure. And when you come back to the donor, you're not testing with that entire PKD1 panel, PKD panel, sorry. You're testing just for that single nucleotide variant that causes disease in that family. So it's a very simple test, very focused, and you won't pick up anything else in the donor that you have to deal with. So just some quick examples. So this is a case of uh, hereditary nephritis. I put in quotes, Alport's. Um, because it doesn't have all the manifestations. So this is the proband, the male. You can see that there is an inheritance pattern that looks like autosomal dominant or X-linked. There is no male-to-male -male transmission. He's got hematuria, he's got ESRD, he's got lenticonus, but does not have any hearing deficit. Um, he's got FSGS with some mesangial and capillary loop IgM and C3, which is probably nonspecific. Um, his GBMs are not uniformly thinned, but they're segmentally thinned. So that smells very much like this is an output spectrum nephropathy, likely X-linked based on the inheritance pattern. And uh, I didn't tell you the age, this is a young male and based on the early age of onset in a young male. So that's the clinical diagnosis. Uh, and the problem is this sister wants to be a donor and she's got, she's perfectly normal on clinical testing, no hearing deficits no lenticonus, no hematuria, no proteinuria, normal kidney function. So again, we start with the recipient candidate, find a genetic variant that explains his alports. He's got X-linked alports. You can see that he's got a uh, variant that is uh, known to cause disease. So his genetic diagnosis is called 4A5 or X-linked alport nephropathy and the donor is tested and she's cleared to donate. Here's another example. Um, a uh, the proband is 28 year old, 28 years old. He's got cystic kidney disease. He doesn't have any family history for you to be certain this is ADPKD, but it looks very much like it. Very large kidneys, innumerable cysts of varying sizes, and he's approaching the need for dialysis. Um, we know that the parents are unaffected because they first stepped forward as possible donors, and they've had imaging studies. They have no cysts, but they can't be donors because of their own other conditions that they have. Uh, and so this, there is a sister who wants to donate. She's got no cysts on ultrasound, but again, it has a negative predictive value of just 90%. So 
So you have three choices. One is to say, well, 90% is pretty good. You can donate. Or you could say that's too high. You can't donate. Come back after you age 40 if your brother is still around and you want to be a donor and your ultrasound is still negative. Or you could do genetic testing in the affected person and use that information to um, screen the um, related sibling, which is what we did. So the recipient carries a missense variant in PKD1. This is previously reported. So he's got ADPKD with PKD1. So how did this come about? Well, the simplest explanation is that this is a de novo variant that arose in the egg or the sperm pre-fertilization, or it could be very early after fertilization in the one, two, or four cell stage. If we know that for sure, then you know that the sister is not at risk without testing. The problem is you don't know that for sure. It could be that the father is not the father, but the father doesn't know, or neither does, does the son. And so you can't take a negative screen here as indication that this is a de novo variant that would not be present in the um, sister. So she gets tested, after she gets counseled, then we test the recipient, then uh, we test the donor and counsel her again before giving her the result. And basically she's negative, the proband is positive, uh, and she proceeds to donate to him. Um, sometimes it doesn't come neatly tied in a bow with a clear uh, indication of what the diagnosis with, um, will be. And sometimes it comes with a diagnosis that won't make you think it's a genetic condition. So here's a 62-year-old female with, uh, that's the proband here, who presents with CKD5 from IG and nephropathy. There's no family history of kidney disease that is known. She needs a kidney transplant. Her daughter comes to be evaluated and has microscopic hematuria. That is it. No um, proteinuria, normal kidney function. What does this mean? So we went and reviewed her renal biopsy. That's the proband, the mother's renal biopsy. And she's got IgA nephropathy. No question. At least she has IgA by immunofluorescence. And that's sufficient to give you a diagnosis of IgA nephropathy, regardless of what you're your light microscopy or your electron microscopy might look like. Um, 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 uh, Moni, I'm going to get to that question too. I have a slide that covers um, why we shouldn't be doing testing on asymptomatic people. This is happening around the country. And I think there are um, uh, decisions that are being made that are not appropriate for a donor. But anyway, here's an electron micro microscopic, microscopic uh, picture, sorry, an, an EM um, of that particular IgA nephropathy person. With the eye of faith, you could say maybe the, the um, GBM is variably thickened, but there really wasn't any classic thinning. And it turns out that um, an, a sister of this proband had deafness, but no known kidney disease. So now what do you do? Um, why can't I move forward? Okay, so um, this brought us to the possibility that maybe mom not only had IG and nephropathy, but that she may also carry alport gene variants. Um, you know, both are common enough that it wouldn't be uncommon to see them occurring together. And so because there's a related living donor, we test um, the affected person, the IgA nephropathy person. She's carrying a pathogenic, a likely pathogenic variant in CALL4A3. The clear unknown here is, is this contributing to CKD in the proband? There's no way to tell. But what do you do with the 40-year-old daughter who wants to donate? So we counsel her, we test her. She's carrying the CALL4A3 variant. Um, and the best we can do is tell her that she probably has um, alport spectrum nephropathy. Her lifetime risk of ESRD may be zero because she may simply go through life with thin base membrane disease, or she may get progressive chronic kidney disease like her mother. And to be prudent, we advise her against uh, donation. Uh, that's just to tell you that both mom and daughter carry the same thing. Um, and you know, um, after this happened, this um, donor um, had her, um, her um, young children tested and at least one of them had also had microscopic hematuria. So I think this is Alport segregating in the family who also happens to have IgA nephropathy. Maybe that's the reason why mom progressed 
but there's no way to tell and there's too much uncertainty. So she didn't donate. Um, sometimes you can't solve them all. So here's another case. Two brothers have kidney disease. One's a 59 year old with hypertension. He's got small cysts on his kidneys. He's presenting after ESRD from the community. What do you, what do you say for an occasional cyst in someone with a long history of hypertension and progressive chronic kidney disease? Could just be acquired cystic disease. Could be medullary cystic kidney disease known today as autosomal dominant tubular interstitial kidney disease. But the fact of the matter is it's pretty non-specific and it's really not clear at all that that's a genetic disease. Except that guy's brother also has end-stage renal disease. And that was even earlier onset. Uh, and his kidney disease doesn't look anything like this brother's. He's got an absent left kidney and right-sided hydronephrosis. Probably has some um, abnormality in kidney and urinary tract development. Um, and you can't really put a differential diagnosis for this individual that will match the other individual. So this is a, clearly a case where you should do some broad-based testing. You don't really have a differential diagnosis. So there's the pedigree. So this particular individual, this 30-year-old son of uh, an affected individual whose brother is also affected, wants to be a kidney donor. Again, normal kidney function, no hematuria, no proteinuria, two normal-looking kidneys on CT and geography and urography. And he really, really wants to donate. So he gets testing done. We don't really find anything. We were worried enough that we adopted a second technique to look for large copy number variants that were also negative. And obviously, um, this is a valid question. I don't know how everybody would, would approach this because um, he's only 30 and we don't have a, we don't really know what's, what this is in the family. Is this genetic? Are these two random sporadic diseases that have no connection? Should we deny this person the, the option of donating? In the end, he was keen, we counseled him and he proceeded to donate. And that's now, I don't know, eight years or so ago. So back to interpreting a test report. Um, when you get a report on a patient that you've ordered genetic testing on, just because you find positive findings, some genes are listed as either pathogenic, lycopathogenic or VUSs, you need to know what the relevance of the phenotype is. And if it's not relevant to the phenotype, it may not be relevant at all for the individual who's being tested. And likewise, as I said earlier, some VUSs may be relevant. So if you had a classic PKD phenotype and you got a VUS in PKD1, it could be relevant. You can't dismiss it just because it's listed as a VUS. And your choices there are, if you're not comfortable with genetic evaluation, consult with the geneticist, you could do additional phenotyping for certain diseases that might have classic findings. So, you know, if you picked up Fabry disease in a person with ESRD and you weren't suspecting Fabry because that person didn't have any symptoms, you could, for example, ask for a slit lamp exam and see if they've got the classic corneal or retinal findings of Fabry's. And if they do, and they've got a uh, a VUS in Fabrase, you could say, well, that looks like it's a very distinctive phenotype that VUS may actually need to be upgraded to a likely pathogen. Or you could choose to do a skin biopsy or a kidney biopsy in someone with two shrunken kidneys who might demonstrate the classic zebra bodies of Fabry disease. But that's just to give you a sense that you can actually do additional testing for recessive variants, you can test the parents, parents to see if the two variants you've identified in the same gene are on the same chromosome or two different chromosomes. And they have to be on two different chromosomes, one from each parent to, to be causing recessive disease. And in the end, you will have to be dealing with uncertainty and you'll have to know how to deal with it. Um, in an affected individual who is your patient, it's one thing. In a person who's perfectly normal, trying to deal with uncertainty can be hard because that donor is not going to get any follow-up from the transplant center or from the nephrologist that has tested him or her because donors don't get the follow-up they should get. So we recently published a series on um, several patients, 24 um, transplant candidates with kidney disease who conform to these four phenotypes. And in all these cases, they had related living donors. We tested the candidate first, made a diagnosis in one half of them by genetic testing. The diagnoses are shown here. Um, 
autosomal dominant, X-linked recessive dominant, dominant autosomal recessive. And for a recessive disease, um, the um, living donor can carry one variant, be a heterozygous asymptomatic carrier, and you can let that person donate. You can see for the PKD1 cases, we had 100% diagnosis, but much less for the other cases. And that tells you that not everything you suspect is genetic is necessarily genetic. Um, it also tells you that not every cause of um, glomerular genetic disease is necessarily uh, known, while we probably have a handle on 99.99% of dominant cystic kidney disease. And then we go on to test the affected living donors, but we only test the ones that are positive here. And you know, you can see that um, six of seven PKD1-related um, donors were negative, and most of them were under the age of 30. And so we were able to allow them to donate because they, we were certain that they didn't have disease. And this is just tells you the, the rest of it. So here's what I think you should do. Um, just looking to see if there's anything in the chat box. No, other than Moni's two questions. So in the living donor candidate who might um, uh, want to be a donor and has a positive family history, and it only takes one affected family member, that parent or that sibling they want to donate to, at least one family member with either known or suspected genetic disease, or if the cause of genetic disease is truly unknown, uh, then you may want to consider whether this is a genetic disease, uh, especially if that donor is a you know, 20 year old child. And the way you should do this is to counsel both donor and the recipient. If the familial disease is known in the recipient, you test the recipient, preferably with a disease focused panel rather than a comprehensive panel just so that you don't have to deal with variants that are unrelated to the phenotype. If the testing is negative, then you just tell the living donor, we don't, we don't have a genetic basis for your father's disease. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a genetic disease. So there's some residual uncertainty. They need to understand um, what that uncertainty is and make a decision about whether they proceed. Um, if the testing is um, positive, and you've confirmed the genetic diagnosis in the recipient candidate, you can do focus testing in the living donor. Either it's positive, you counsel against donation, or negative, and you permit donation. If the recipient's disease is unknown and you don't really have a limited panel of disease genes to test with, you would do comprehensive panel testing. Again, it would partition into these two. And in the middle then is also a test result category where you get a VUS, or you get a variant that is pathogenic or likely pathogenic, but it doesn't match the phenotype. And then you have to make a decision, is this relevant or is this not? And as I said, you can do segregation, you can do extended phenotyping, you may be able to move them to a negative test or a positive test, or you may be left with residual uncertainty. And you just have to be fully cognizant of the limitations of genetic uh, testing because you can open a Pandora's box. There are also situations where a living donor candidate um, does not have a family history of disease, but has findings that are minor, but leave you with enough uncertainty that you wonder whether they have a genetic disease. So for example, they may have you know, six cysts on a CT scan in their kidneys. Um, they have no family history of cystic kidney disease, but they're only age 25. And a 25 year old should only have maybe one cyst um, because we all get cysts as we age. So six seem, seem like a lot, or you may have microscopic hematuria, no family history. That's also an abnormality that might indicate uh, a genetic disease. So you can consider in that situation additional testing, which again, ought to be limited to the diseases of interest to you. So if they are cysts, they ought to be limited to a PKD panel, but you have to, before you do the test, determine what you're going to do if the test is negative. Are you going to let the donor um, make a decision about donating? Are you going to say no anyway? And if the answer is you're going to say no anyway, then perhaps you don't need to test for the sake of determining donation suitability. You may still want to test if she's interested in 
knowing what she has. So it's not an easy area to be. Um, so uh, I'm going to first speak about Moni's question about um, that case history. He asked if the recipient candidate had also been tested for complement factor H, where at the initially no, um, she, um, neither of these two people are from around here. So um, the donor donated to her sister in some other part of the country. The sister is not known to us, um, lost her kidney in a short period of time, according to the donor who developed atypical HUS several years later. She lost her kidney from recurrent disease, which today we would call recurrent atypical HUS. So don't know, but it's highly likely that the recipient had the same disease. Um, and it's not like we could have done very much back in 2001 because eculizumab was only FDA approved maybe seven years ago, eight years ago. So if she got transplanted, then she was sort of... Uh, destined to get recurrent disease as long as a related donor with pre-symptomatic disease was the source of the kidney. If she got it from an asymptomatic, sorry, from a, uh, from a uh, um, uh, unrelated person, she still has a high risk for disease, but it probably wouldn't have been as high as 100%. Um, and the second question Moni asked is, why not just screen every living donor for genetic disease? Well, the reason is that a, unlike a person who comes to the genetic counselor or the geneticist because they have a family history of genetic disease and they truly want to know what disease they have, living kidney donors aren't coming to the transplant center because they want to find out what their risk of getting genetic kidney disease is. The first time they hear about a genetic disease is usually when it's brought up in the transplant clinic. They're not necessarily ready to be finding out about serious conditions they have. That's one. And so approaching testing of asymptomatic people um, with uh, broad testing is, is fraught with problem because of the high frequency of deleterious variants you can identify and the high frequency of VUSs you can identify. And not everybody can live with the uncertainty of what all those variants mean. Uh, the second is that at least when it comes to some of the genetic kidney diseases, when you do population-based screening, it can be very common. So what do we know about alpotenephropathy? Well, the clinical literature would tell us that the incidence is about one in 5,000 uh, to one in 50,000. One in 5,000 is for uh, excellent recessive. One in 50,000 is for autosomal recessive. And the textbooks will tell you that autosomal dominant alpots is the least common of these three forms. But it actually turns out that it is the most common of the three alpot uh, diseases. And in fact, it is the most common genetic kidney disease, even more common than polycystic kidney disease. It just doesn't always have a profound phenotype. How do we know this? Well, so here is a study that was just recently published. This is a large study, but there's been smaller studies like this. So the NOMAD database is a database of 150,000 plus individuals from around the world, from all sorts of ancestries, whose entire genome was sequenced. And the people that were entered into the NOMAD database could not have serious childhood diseases, but that's about it. So they're not normal people, but they're not seriously ill. And so from that database, we know the prevalence, the population-based prevalence of genetic variants that are common enough to appear at least once in 150,000 people. And it turns out that in that database of um, you know, not normal people, but not seriously um, diseased people, a predicted pathogenic call for a 5 variant was seen in one in 2,000 people. And in Europeans, that came from a single genetic variant called the um, GLI624 ASP variant. 50% of Europeans with uh, X-linked um, ALPO gene variants carry that particular variant, which is a hypomorphic variant, so it doesn't present with serious disease. And may, maybe why it's undercounted because it doesn't come to clinical attention. But see what happens when you look for pathogenic call for A3 or A4 variants. One in a hundred people carry a likely pathogenic variant and call for A3. 
or um, A4 um, in that population that was quote unquote um, reasonably uh, free of known kidney disease. In Latinos, it's one in 63. In Finns, it's one in 400. So there is a population-based difference, but you know, one in 50 to one in 100 is a lot of um, uh, pathogenic call for A3 or A4. Does that mean they all have uh, microscopic hematuria and some develop CKD? Um, probably not. Well, certainly not for the latter part of it and probably not for microscopic hematuria because there was another large genome sequencing project called the 100,000 Genomes Project from the United Kingdom. That particular project was, was solely focused on people with complicated, complex conditions which had not been solved. So those were all people that have phenotypes in the database. In NOMAD, there is no phenotype. All you know is that the entry criteria meant you couldn't have a serious childhood disease. So this has a phenotype. And in that particular database too, there was a lot of Call4A3 or Call4A3, A4 variants. And it turned out most of them did not have hematuria. So does that mean that they even have disease? We don't know because penetrance um, can only be defined when you do population-based studies and then serially follow them for the rest of their life. So maybe patients with autosomal dominant alcohols have hematuria some of the time, but not all of the time. And maybe 99% of them just have thin based membranes and nothing more. Well, we don't know what makes people with autosomal dominant alcohols progress to more severe uh, disease. So this, Moni, is why we don't want to be doing broad-based screening of asymptomatic living donors, certainly not without um, having them uh, um, see a geneticist or a genetic counselor. Um, so they do have roles. Um, they can interpret the genetic test report after. They can assist you with counseling donors for more broad-based testing. Um, you know, best practice would be to counsel before and after genetic testing. We are fortunate to be able to do that here, but most transplant centers don't have access to a genetic counselor that um, will you know, show up in their transplant clinic for this. They can help in identifying and establishing the variance relevance. And um, I think that even when you're doing a non-genetic test to make a di diagnosis of a genetic disease in an asymptomatic individual, they ought to get genetic counseling. That's not taught in genetic counseling school, but if you took a 21-year-old sister of someone with PKD and you were going to do ultrasound to see if they've got PKD, I think they ought to be counseled that you're going to give them a genetic diagnosis that has an impact not only on them, but on their yet unborn children. And it is a major diagnosis that you're making for them, but that's really not part of traditional genetic counseling uh, um, teaching. So um, uh, Prerna asked, could money and time also be a limiting factor? Well, so in transplant um, uh, evaluations, the, the, the cost is typically not an issue, but genetic testing is new enough that some transplant centers are struggling to figure out how to pay for it. But really all evaluation relevant to transplant of the transplant candidate and all evaluation relevant to donation of the donor candidate is paid for by the, by, by the recipient's insurance, which for the most part means CMS is paying for it. So if you need to do a screening MRI for someone with polycystic kidney disease to see if they've got a berry aneurysm in the brain or you need to do a, um, a genetic test in the asymptomatic donor to see if they have polycystic kidney disease, it should all be covered by the recipient's insurance. But it's not written down in the CMS manual, so people struggle to know whether that is true. And it is true because that's how we've been doing it here. So um, cost is not an issue. Time is an issue because now you're going to interrupt the, the donor sequencing, the donor um, donation by saying, wait, we have to wait to do the recipient testing. Then we have to counsel the donor. Then we have to test the donor. So you introduce delays and you do need um, a transplant center that uh, is okay with um, the uh, role of genetic testing in selected candidates. I've told you all of this. This is really just uh, telling you that um, 
there is genetic disease to be found if you go looking, but make sure you have a purpose to look. And when you come to asymptomatic living donor candidates, be very cautious. Um, you, you know, Maggie, this is my um, reminder to thank um, Richard and his people in the uh, Iowa Institute of Human Genetics for coming up with this broad-based genetic testing panel. And to the transplant administrators and Alan Reed, uh, the um, director of the organ transplant service for, um, uh, you know, giving us uh, free reign to choose patients that we felt were appropriate for genetic testing and uh, proceeding as we thought appropriate for donor and recipient. But again, I think they may well be pushed back at some transplant centers because of the delays, the perceived costs and so on. Um, I think that co covers the information in the chat. Any other questions? Was I heard? I think there's a question. Yes, I think there's a question in the chat from uh, Lawrence. All right, that's the first voice I heard. So um, at least it means that I wasn't speaking into the void. Um, so uh, the answer, Chijen, is no. So th the the kidney seek panel is uh, um, is a is a targeted gene panel. So what we're doing is pulling down the coding region of uh, now 400 um, Mendelian renal disease genes. So by pulling down the coding region, we, do not, we are not um, um, evaluating the, um, the rest of the transcript, the five prime and the three prime untranslated region. We're not evaluating intervening regions or introns except for 10, 15 bases at the five prime and three prime end of the intron. And we're certainly not evaluating the five prime and three prime regulatory regions, the portions that are outside of the um, uh, primary RNA transcript where the promoter region is or the regulatory regions that um, govern transcription of a gene is. So we can, and we certainly do miss uh, um, deleterious genetic uh, variants by not sequencing that but probably 85, 90% of Mendelian disease genes occur from uh, variants that occur within the coding sequence. And so it does give you um, the best bang for the buck to um, do it this way. But if I had someone I seriously suspected of a genetic disease and the sequencing that was limited to coding regions, whether it's exome sequencing or kidney seed, or, or other, I would consider then subjecting that individual to genome sequencing, looking for variants outside of the sequence region that might um, explain the disease. Christy, do you, you know, since I'm not a transplant nephrologist, I'm trying to think about applying this to my own practice. I mean, I, I kind of feel like it's not too much of an extension to say that anybody who has a family member, a close family member with ESRD, who is presenting with any degree of renal dysfunction should be by this logic tested if possible, or had their, you know, obviously the affected sibling or relative testing. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. And I would sort of go further, John, and tell you that if you had a patient at any stage in their ESRD evolution, including in the dialysis unit um, dialyzing for the last five years, and you came to know that they um, have or have a high likelihood of having a genetic cause for their ESRD, I think it's reasonable to let them know that whatever they have might have a bearing on their family member. So there may be somebody there, let's say, who's got X-linked alports, um, but they were never told that, that we now have the opportunity to, to counsel and um, evaluate their, um, uh, their um, 
loved ones if they wanted to, whether or not they are known to have disease, because not everybody actually has even been to a doctor. Um, we've had a patient with um, Alport's who was tested after he was transplanted because he appeared to have a pedigree suggestive of X-linked disease, but nobody had actually um, brought up the possibility of a genetic disease with him uh, and he had never had a kidney biopsy and he turned out to have extinct alports. And he told his brother who then came to see us who had never been to a doctor who actually had CKD stage three with hematuria and proteinuria and had uh, disease. So yes, you may have people affected who haven't been evaluated for a genetic disease or you may have people who don't even know they're affected. Other questions? Uh, we're a little over time, so um, I guess we should call it quits. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.